Let me leave this in the prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that um, you have been speaking to us in your word. And we pray that as we come to consider this word now, that you continue to speak to us. And that your spirit will work in our hearts, and opening our eyes to Jesus, and helping us to exalt him, and to love him, and to obey him as we We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There are many things that happen in life that demand a response from us. People act in certain ways, positive or negative, and we need to respond. People ask for our allegiance on various matters, and we need to respond. People threaten our positions, and whether intentionally or unintentionally, and we need to respond. Sometimes we can fail to respond. We can ignore things or sweep them under the carpet. But that itself is a response, isn't it? To do nothing is just as much a decision in the end as to do something. In our passage today, we see how John the Baptist responds to the increasing popularity of Jesus. And we will see why we have to respond to Jesus as well and what that response should be. But before we do that, let me just remind you of where we're up to in John's Gospel. In the first part of John chapter 1, we saw the Word, the Light, the Son was God with God. And he became flesh, he came into the world. The perfect revelation of God to us. And then we saw that John the Baptist was sent by God to prepare the way for his coming. He identified himself as the voice in the wilderness that the prophet Isaiah had written about many years before. The one crying out, prepare the way for the Lord. And we read how he identified Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then we saw how some of John's disciples left him, as a result, to follow Jesus. And they, in turn, told others who also began to follow Jesus, and so Jesus' following began to grow. And then in chapter 2, we saw the visit of Jesus and his disciples to a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And we saw how Jesus turned water into wine when the wine ran out. And you remember, it is the bridegroom's job to provide the wine. And so Jesus showed himself symbolically to be the, the true bridegroom for God's people. And then last week we saw him clearing the temple. Or two weeks ago we saw him clearing the temple. And, and the dispute that he had with the Jews about that. And you remember what he said? Destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. And he was talking about the temple of his body. And, and so Jesus claimed to be the true temple. The place where we really need God. And then in chapter 3, thus far, we've seen his conversation with Nicodemus. And we saw that Jesus taught that it is necessary to be born again if we are to enter the kingdom of God. But that is not something that we can do. Only the Holy Spirit can give us new birth. And we saw the great promise of John 3.16. That God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now, by the end of this chapter, we're going to come back to some of those things. But before we get there, John the Apostle, who wrote this book, takes us back to meet John the Baptist once again. And this is the last time we meet John the Baptist in this book. He's mentioned by other characters, but it's the last time we actually meet him. And this time, well, it's a situation where John and Jesus are exercising parallel ministries. 
Now, if you read Matthew and Mark, they record the ministry of Jesus from the time that, Matthew, that John was put in prison. And they tell us that after John was arrested, Jesus started his ministry up in the north, in Galilee. But John wants us to know that this bit that he's about to tell us is before that. Before John was put in prison. And John and Jesus are both down south in Judea. John chapter 3 verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went to the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem because water was plentiful there and people were coming to be baptized for John had not yet been put into prison. Right, so John's baptizing in the area and then Jesus also baptizing in the area. Although technically, we'll see later, or in chapter 4 rather, that it wasn't him who was doing the, 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 the actual ceremony, it was his disciples who were doing it. But there's two groups of people baptizing. And then there was some controversy, verse 25. Now, some, now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. Purification. Now, purification is ritual cleansing, ceremonial washing. Uh, the Old Testament had people bathing in water as part of the ritual to cleanse uh, from, from ceremonial uncleanness. And so perhaps the Jews and the disciples of John are discussing how John's baptism fits into that. Uh, John might well have seen baptism as a form of washing or cleansing or, or purification. And so they might be debating about this. Uh, another option stems from the fact that we already know that the Jews didn't think John and his guys should be baptizing. Right? If you look back in chapter 1, verse 25, they ask John, they say to him, well, why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? What, what gives you the right to do these baptisms? What gives you the right to do these purifications if you're not? And so maybe the dispute's about that. Alternatively, it may well be that this Jew was taunting John's disciples about the fact that Jesus was getting more followers than John was. You think your baptism or purification is so good? Well, you guys are just a fly-by-night sect. No, we're not. Yes, you are. Why? Already people are leaving you to go to the next guy. What do you mean? You know, Jesus of Nazareth. He's doing this purification baptism thing better than you. He's getting more popular than your master. That would fit the scene very well, wouldn't it? Because that's what John's disciples leave the argument pretty worried about. You see, when the Jews asked John what gave him the right to baptize, John said he was preparing the way for one greater than he. And so the legitimacy of John's ministry, the legitimacy of John's baptism actually came from Jesus. But now, Jesus has got his own disciples. And the people are moving to him. Which on the one hand means a job, that John has done a good job, but on the other hand, it must have been a bit hard to take for John's loyal disciples. Their, their leader had been the, the focus of God's message to the nation. But now the focus was coming off them and to another group. People were leaving him and going to Jesus. And if you're human, and you still have a sinful nature, that's not his And John's disciples are concerned. Verse 26. 
They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. So how does John respond? Right. Forget what I said about Jesus. He's the competition now. Right. Let's find some dirt on him and hang it out. Or let's make some rumors about him and spread them around. Or even let's work out his legitimate crowd-pulling techniques and, and improve our own. There's not room for two baptizing groups in the Judean countryside. And we were here first. Oh, that's not how John reacts. Verse 27. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. He says, look, everything I have is by God's grace. It's not that I've been so good or so clever to make myself a prophet of Israel. It's just God's kindness to use me. A person cannot receive one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. And that's the same for you, my disciples, he says. Every ministry you have is by God's grace. And the ministry we share together is God's, which in his kindness he gave us. And he gave us this ministry in his time for his purpose. And the purpose, you know, is to prepare the way for Christ. Verse 28. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. So it's okay if our ministry goes downhill from here. It's never really ours to stop. And brothers and sisters, isn't that a great example for any one of us in ministry? Sometimes we're tempted to think that our ministry is our ministry. We can possessive or defensive of we can even be tempted to think that our ministry is intrinsically important when really all we're doing is pointing people to Christ. And here John gives the best anecdote, not anecdote, antidote to that. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. See, whatever ministries you and I have, whatever roles we've been given to play among God's people, that is, that is all by God's grace. We cannot receive one thing unless it is given by God. It's a gift of grace. Other ministries God gave us is different from the ministry God gave John. We are part of the new covenant. We don't prepare the way for Jesus. We announce his death and resurrection and coming again to the world. And we have all different ways of doing it. And we do all kinds of different ministries to make sure that happens. Work together. But the purpose of our ministries, the purpose of John's ministry, is exactly the same. God gave John a ministry for one purpose, to glorify his Son. And God gave us different ministries for one purpose, to glorify his Son. So we must remember that. Jesus is not there to glorify your ministry. Your ministry is there to glorify Jesus. So don't idolize your ministry. It's not about you. It's about him. Now, some of you might be surprised that we can make an idol out of Christian ministry. But friends, the human heart is so sinful we can make an idol out of anything. 
speak to myself as a pastor. Speak to all of you who are leaders among God's people today. Don't idolize your ministry. Your ministry and mine are ultimately not important in and of themselves. It's okay if our ministry goes down, as long as Christ goes up. It's okay if we don't get to do what we want to do, as long as Christ is obeyed. It's okay if we don't become more prominent, as long as Christ is glorified. That's what really matters. So in our hearts, we must love Jesus more than we love our ministry. We serve in our ministries because we love Jesus who loved us first. Not for any other reason. And so in the end, when all the ministry is gone, it's still okay. Because we have Christ. And Christ is what we cling to, not the ministry. When Don Carson was here last year, he told us that Anecdote, this time it is anecdote, about Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Martin Lloyd-Jones is one of the greatest preachers of God's Word of the 20th century, especially like him because he's a doctor turned into a preacher. And he, he preached to thousands of people, started all kinds of ministries, wrote lots of books, generally revered in evangelical circles around the world. And when he was dying of cancer, one of his friends came to visit him. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who had been so active in ministry, so faithful in serving the Lord, so influential for the gospel, could hardly move from his bed to his chair. So his friend asked him how he was coping with not being able to do all those things that he wanted to do. And Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, quoting Luke 10.20, Do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And he added, I am content. See, brothers and sisters, cling to Christ, not your ministry. In your ministry, you point people to heaven. Well, then John gives an illustration that, that shows his role, verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. It's the bridegroom, not the, not the friend of the bridegroom. You see, wouldn't it be terrible, wouldn't it be just awful to have a wedding where the best man is actively competing with the bridegroom for the attention and affection of the bride? Huh? wrong, wouldn't it? The best man, the, the bridegroom's friend, is, is there for the bridegroom, not to compete with him. The bridegroom finds his joy in the bride. And the bridegroom's friend finds his joy in the bridegroom's joy. And so John continues in the second half of verse 29. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. John is actually happy that Jesus is here. He rejoices at the bridegroom's voice. And the Old Testament, he talks about God's people being married to him. It's all one of those passages in our Old Testament reading today. 
Israel was God's bride. And, and even so far in John's Gospel, we've seen that Jesus is, is a true bridegroom. In fact, this is not just an illustration of John, this is a marking of reality. Jesus is the true bridegroom, and God's people are the bride. And, and if Jesus is the bridegroom and God's people are the bride, then Jesus must become more and more important to God's people. Jesus must be the one that God's people are attached to. Jesus must be the one they flock to. Jesus must be the one they love above all. And John mustn't get in the way. And so he says in verse 30, He must increase, but I must decrease. See, if Jesus is the bridegroom, and John is his friend, then John is perfectly content to let Jesus take the bridegroom. He wouldn't have any other way. And once again, John is a great example for all Christian leaders. He knows who the bridegroom is. And he's not about to compete with him for the bride. And leaders don't compete with Jesus for the affections of his people. The church is his bride, not ours. We are here to help the bride be ready for her true husband. We are here to make him the center of her attention. We are here to make him the object of her affections. And if the church loves her bridegroom and is presented beautifully to him, we have done our job. Whatever she may or may not think of us. We are servants of the bridegroom, not competitors with him. And church, you must remember that as well. It's, it's okay to love your leaders. In fact, I kind of hope that you do. But make sure you love Christ more. He is your bridegroom. Make sure your ultimate loyalty is to him, not to anyone else. For we proclaim Christ Jesus as Lord, and we as your servants for Christ's sake. The second half of our passage, from verse 31 to 36, are editorial comments from the Apostle John, who wrote this book, to form a conclusion, a wrapping up what we've read in the last three chapters. Help us to see how we should respond. Remember we saw in chapter 1 that Jesus comes from above. He is the eternal word made flesh. He is God with God, revealing God. And so he's, he's greater than everyone, even John the Baptist. Well, in verse 31, we are reminded of the supremacy of Jesus. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. Right? John belongs to the earth. He's just a man. Jesus is a real human, but he's not just human. He's also God from heaven. And so John is entirely right that Jesus is greater than him. So how should people respond to the one who comes from heaven? Well, before John tells us that, he tells us how people generally do respond. It reminds you again of chapter 1. Because in chapter 1 we saw when the word was made flesh, when the light comes into the world, it was rejected by the world. It came to his own people, and his own people didn't know. And in verse 32 of chapter 3 we see that again. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard yet, no one receives his testimony. 
It's a little bit surprising that John puts this here, this kind of book, isn't it? When Jesus seems to be doing quite well from a human point of view. More people are coming to him for baptism than are going to John. But things aren't always as they seem from a human point of view. The actual witness that Jesus is making, the actual testimony that he was testifying, the actual gospel that he was proclaiming was, was being rejected. No one receives his testimony. And what is this witness, this testimony? Well, John doesn't say here, so we have to go back and see what he's recorded as Jesus having said earlier. And Jesus does speak about bearing witness or testimony uh, back in verse 11 of chapter 3. He says, truly I say to you, he's talking to Nicodemus, we speak of what we know, we bear witness to what we have seen, and you do not receive our testimony. So what's that testimony? Well, it was all that stuff that we saw last week that Nicodemus couldn't receive. The things we saw about the new birth, that we cannot be born again ourselves, that we need the Spirit. But it's even more than that, because Jesus talks in verse 12 about going on to heavenly things. And in verse 13, there are things he knows because he's the one who's descended from heaven. And what are those things? Must be what he says in verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him might have eternal life. See, Jesus' testimony is that people must be born again to enter God's kingdom. Jesus bears witness to the eternal plan of God, the very thing that the God the Father and God the Son decided in eternity, that he would come and be lifted up to die to take the punishment for sins so that those who believe in him can be forgiven and have eternal life. The people believe him? Generally, no. And if you go out today and tell your friends they need to be born again, if you go out today and tell them in God's secret plan, God sent his son into the world to die for our sins, and that is the way to escape God's wrath, that is the way to escape God's punishment for sin and have eternal life, you think people are going to believe you? Generally, no. But it's true. Jesus says so. And if you believe it because Jesus says so, then you believe God. Verse 33. Whoever receives his testimony, as Jesus, sets his seal to this, that God is true. You see, what Jesus says, God says. There's, thus, there's nothing between Jesus and God. There's no gap. There's no, there's no limit to the communion between the Father and the Son through the Spirit. So, disjunction. Verse 34. For he whom the Father has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father gives the Spirit to the Son in a full, absolute, unlimited way. What is in the Father is in the Son. What is in the Son is in the Father. And so when the Son speaks, He speaks for the Father. And we must respond to Him. Verse 35, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. There is nothing that belongs to the Father and not to the Son, except, of course, His fatherhood of the Son. The words are given. The authority is given, the world is given, the glory is given. So deep is the eternal union between Father and the Son of love that, that Jesus shares everything that belongs to the Father. Everything, even the Spirit Himself, completely. 
And so you cannot relate to the Son without relating to the Father. And you cannot relate to the Father without relating to the Son. And how you respond to the Son is how you respond to the Father. How you treat the Son is how you treat the Father. If you listen to Jesus, you are listening to the Father. If you reject Jesus, you are rejecting the Father. All the prophets of the Old Testament who spoke about the Father, when you look back, you see they spoke about Jesus. All the apostles of the New Testament who spoke about Jesus, they are showing us the Father because of Jesus we see the Father. And if any so-called prophet were to arise and claim to be greater than Jesus, if any so-called prophet were to arise and, and claim to have a message from the Father apart from Jesus, if any so-called prophet were to arise and diminish the glory of Jesus by making him something less than the Word made flesh, then he would be a false prophet. He would not be a latter equivalent of an Old Testament prophet, no, because every Old Testament prophet pointed forward to Christ. A false prophet drives people away from Christ. Drives people away from the Father. Therefore, it's under gospel. But God's wrath is not only what deceiving false prophets deserve, it's, it's what all sinners deserve. It's what anyone deserves who has insulted the Holy God by not treating Him properly. What we won't and so unless something happens to save us from it then God's wrath in the words at the end of verse 36 remains on us friends hell is real we, we mustn't ignore it hell is awful friends we, we mustn't minimize it hell is as terrible as God's holiness is great. For hell is a just punishment for sinning against the holiness of God. And if we minimize hell, then we are saying God's not as holy as He really is. We minimize God's holiness. And if we think about it, if actually, if we minimize hell, we also minimize God's love. Because God's love is as great as hell is terrible. Because you see, in the death of Jesus, God himself paid the awful price for us. God himself, in the person of Jesus, took our hell on our behalf. That is how much God loves you. If you minimize hell, you minimize that. You make the sacrifice of Jesus something less than it was. Your friends, God's wrath is real. Hell is real. Because love is real. And so there is a way of escape. There is a way not only to avoid God's judgment, but to live in love with Him forever. To share the love and the life God has given us in His Son. To be caught up in the joy and delight of the Trinity for all eternity. And that way, the only way, is through the Son of God. Here is the verdict, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, because the wrath of God remains on them. Do you believe in the Son? 
Do you believe that Jesus Christ is God made flesh? Do you believe that He is the one who has come down from heaven, the one who is above all? Do you believe that He died on the cross to pay for your sins? Do you believe that He rose again from the dead? Do you believe in Him such that you trust in Him as your only way of access to the Father? You obey Him when He calls you to come before Him. So will you remain a little of God? Friends, I urge you, I plead with you. Respond rightly to Jesus. Believe in the Son. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever does not obey the Son will not see life. Because the wrath of God remains in him.